0: Welcome to the show. Hello, 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 my goddess. Do you ever pick up a book that you literally become obsessed with? And by obsessed, I mean you can't put it down. You stay up way past your bedtime because you keep reading it. You tell everyone that you know that they must read this book. You start writing internet posts and blogs about the contents of the book because you can't get it out of your mind and you feel like what you've read has changed you at the cellular level, like that this is important. Well, that's exactly what has happened to me with a book called The Woman They Could Not Silence by Kate Moore. I picked up this book. I started reading it. I became so obsessed, I started telling everyone I know, have you heard about this? Have you, do you know this? Do you know this? Because the book is about how in the 1800s, it was fairly common, or at least not unusual, for a husband to commit his wife to a mental institution without any proof of her being mentally unstable. In other words, she was jailed against her will. And this is a true story. And I am obsessed. And so I'm halfway through the book. Well, now I'm full way through the book. But when I was halfway through the book, I said to Josh, can you please reach out to this author and see if she would be on the podcast? And so I cannot even tell you how thrilled I am to have Kate Moore with me. Kate Moore is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of The Radium Girls, which won the 2017 Goodreads Choice Award for Best History, was voted U.S. Librarian's favorite nonfiction book of 2017 and was named a notable nonfiction book of 2018 by the American Library Association. She's a Brit. You're going to love her accent. Based near Cambridge. And she writes across a variety of genres and has had multiple titles on the Sunday Times bestseller list. Her latest book is this unbelievable, critically acclaimed The Woman They Could Not Silence, which among other accolades, was named runner-up for best history in the 2021 Goodreads Choice Award and 2021 Booklist Editor's Choice. Everyone must go pick up a copy of this book. We're going to have book club. We're going to talk about it. But first, let me introduce Kate Moore. Kate, welcome to the Purpose Girl podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for that incredible introduction. I'm so thrilled and touched by your words. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, this is really my honor. As a women's empowerment coach and motivational speaker, I have been saying, do you people know this? Like, do you know that our great-grandmother's husbands could just commit them to an asylum? This has, this has opened my eyes. And I suppose it's not even to new information, but a deep knowing in my soul yeah. about how women have been silenced
1: that that's exactly right and i think for me you know the whole genesis of this book was that sort of integral feeling of of this happening again and again, and happening throughout history. And I've chosen to focus on this particular chapter of history, you know, in the 1860s. But the motivation to write the book actually came from Me Too and the fall of 2017. And the idea of how women have been silenced and how that keeps happening. And it sort of boiled down to let's focus on this one chapter from history. But actually, all the themes in the book resonate, because it's still happening today and it's happened throughout history. And so that sort of feeling of, of knowing it in your bones and, and that sort of thing, it's familiar, even though it's historical, because we still see echoes mm-hmm. of it today and we still see, you know, the similar things happening around us today.
0: Yes. And you do this so brilliantly at the end of the book. I almost don't want to give it away, except I will say you do it so brilliantly. We're at the very end, the last chapter, you tell a story and it's recent day. Mm. Right. About the names that Nancy Pelosi has been called and about how we try to silence. Nevertheless, she persisted with Elizabeth Warren and how women in today's world are being treated exactly the same. And I suppose that's why, Kate, this impacted me so much is I've been witness to part of marching on behalf of us having a voice. And that's my life's work. And then to read this truth, history, that women have been told that when they speak up, they're crazy. They belong in an institution. We have to keep them locked up. It's like, I think a whole ding, 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 ding went off in my body to say, oh, well, this pattern, it's in us. So every time a woman feels like, well, I have an idea, but no, I should, I shouldn't share it, or it's probably crazy, or people are going to think I'm nuts, or gosh, I really want to speak up at the dinner table because what is being talked about is not okay, but they're going to think XYZ. It's like, well, that's because generationally, this is still in our bones and still in our cells, right? It was passed then from great grandmother to grandmother to mother.
1: Completely, and I think that's what makes the heroine of this story, Elizabeth Packard, who is the woman they could not silence, that what is what makes her so extraordinary because she has that you know in her bones and it's been you know it, it's passed down through the generations right to us, as you say, but Elizabeth rejects that knowledge. She feels so impassioned that she has to find her voice and then use it to make the world a better place that she refuses to be silenced. And despite everything that the world and her husband and society throws at her, she refuses to be silenced. And that's why she's such a powerful heroine, I think, because Mm. we can look at her story and we appreciate intimately the struggles that she had and the vitriol with which she was attacked and we stand back and admire what she went through and what she achieved despite all of that you know silencing that went on against her because she shone through and she fought through and she triumphed and that is what is so yes. extraordinary about her particularly because she's doing it in the 1860s right
0: right 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 so let's let's talk about elizabeth can you share the story with everyone who's listening without you know without giving everything away because they need to of go course. read the book
1: I'll set the scene. Tell us about Elizabeth. (laughs) So Elizabeth Packard is perhaps the most important, you know, female campaigner you have never heard of, because so Mm. many people have never heard her name, and I've had you know, so many emails from people that, you know, they studied women's history or they studied politics and they had never heard of her. And they're stunned when they read the book and realise everything she contributed to the reform movements of the 19th century, to women's rights, to the rights of the mentally ill. And they don't know her story and they don't know her name. And part of that legacy is, of course, about the silencing of women as well. But her story starts on the cusp of the American Civil War in June 1816. And it starts with Elizabeth Packard, a 43-year-old housewife and mother of six, lying in bed in her marital home. And it starts with a simple question. What would happen if your husband could commit you to an insane asylum just because you disagreed with him? And that ultimately Mm -hmm. is what happens to Elizabeth. Elizabeth simply disagrees with her husband and she dares to voice that You know, difference of opinion publicly. And for her husband, who is a minister, that is too much. That sort of, you know, rejection of his marital authority, his spiritual authority, because she leaves his church and goes to worship with another one instead, that is too much for him. And he conspires to lock her up in an insane asylum. And the story charts what happens to Elizabeth, it charts. What, what I love about the book is it's called The Woman They Could Not Silence, but ultimately it's the story of Elizabeth finding her voice and learning Mm. how to use it. It's not just about, you know, she's not that woman who could not be silenced at the start of the story. She has to go on a journey, you know, through the horror of being incarcerated, even though she's not mad, you know, simply because she's an intelligent woman who dares to disagree with her husband. And what I love about the story is it charts her journey. You know, how do you go through that experience and come out the other side, not only with, you know, your mental health intact, but actually a stronger person. And one of Elizabeth's favorite quotations, you know, she kept a journal in the asylum, which I can quote in the book. So it's, you know, the book is stuffed full of first person quotes from Elizabeth herself. So you really get to intimately experience what she went through. And she said, um, you know, in my case, this woman crushing machinery works the wrong way. The true woman Mm. shines brighter and brighter under the process instead of being strangled. And I love that Mm. quote. And the other quote I just want to mention as we're sort of summarizing her story and and sort of, you know, looking at, at who she is and who she became. She says when she's thrown, you know, into the asylum and essentially the key is thrown away as well, you know, she has no hope of getting out. She could be, as some women were, locked up for the rest of her life. And she says, the worst that my enemies can do, they have done. And I fear them no more I am now free Mm. to be true and honest. No opposition can overcome me. And it's that realization that frees Elizabeth. You know, she's actually liberated by this horrifying attack on her. And after that, it's no holds barred. She is now free to be the woman that she is. She's now free to become this incredible heroine who cannot be silenced. And it's actually, you know, her husband sent her to the asylum, hoping that he would silence her forever and and write her out of his life. In fact, Elizabeth becomes this incredible force to be reckoned with, a woman who will take on not only her husband, but the entire patriarchy.
0: Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Do you all see why I love this book so much? I'm like obsessed and I love you, Kate Moore. Thank you, thank you for bringing Elizabeth's story to us. It's my honor. She, She turns, as you so beautifully quoted in her own words, this like soul crushing experience that no one would have blamed her if she had just stayed silent, it's not worth it. Or if she had become mad from that, right? If she had really...
1: As happened to a lot of Of women, you know, going through that experience. Of course, you know you're, you know, you're literally in an insane asylum. No one is believing a word that you say. You're witnessing abuse, you know, degradation all around you. And no matter how, you know, the harder you fight against it, the more mad people think you are. You know, if you shout, if you rail, you accuse your husband of a conspiracy. All of this is seen as paranoia, uh, you know, and and more insanity. So you're sort of stuck in this situation. And the harder you try to fight, the more likely it is that you're going to lose, you know, not only your freedom, but your sanity itself.
0: Yes. And she did this incredible thing because, as you said, she did witness so much abuse. And she herself was abused in multiple ways. And she could have just given up and certainly become insane herself, but she hung on and turned that pain into fierce purpose.
1: Yeah. Completely. And in some ways, she used that to help her get through, you know, she saw what other people were experiencing, and she determined that she would not silently witness it. She was the kind of woman who would always get involved. You know, she said, I will not half do anything. And if she set her Mm. mind to something, she would do it. And she was motivated by her faith. And she knew that if she helped other people, that would actually help her you know it would it, it, if she set her mind to cleaning the filthy wards if she set her mind to coaxing the sort of patients who were you know running wild and you know hair bedraggled you know, filthy skin, people are not being cared for. If she could care for them, then that gave her purpose and drive. And it gave her this mission that she had to reveal to the outside world what was really going on in these institutions, you know, because she had always thought that a mental hospital would be, you know, a, a sanctuary, a place where you could get well. She had never anticipated that Firstly, essentially, the asylums were sort of depositories for unsatisfactory wives. But (laughs) secondly, that the um, attendants would abuse their power in the way that they did in the 1860s and in the way that we see countless times they still do now, you know, whenever there is an imbalance of power it is, you know, there's a chance that people will be exploited. And that is what mm-hmm. happens, that Elizabeth witnesses, and she determines she will be a voice to speak out against it. And practically, within the asylum, she will become a champion for these oppressed people.
0: Mm. And she does. On the other side, there were countless laws. You, I'd, I'd have to look up exactly how many, but countless reforms and laws came because of her work, when she was out of the asylum.
1: Exactly. And and that was on several fronts because having been in an asylum herself, having witnessed people with depression, anxiety, anorexia, um, you know, obviously some of these conditions hadn't been identified at the time, but you can see in her descriptions of the patients exactly what's going on, you know, looking back from our, you know, modern day perspective and knowledge. And she knew that, you know, having met these people who were genuinely mentally unwell, There was nothing to fear from them. Actually, these people needed support. Hmm. And so what Elizabeth determined to be was to be their champion. And so she would fight for those patients who perhaps the world would rather forget. She would fight for them, for example, to have postal rights. She would fight for them to have uh, inspectors, you know, actually inspecting the asylum to check for abuse she would um you know try in some states to get a female inspector on the board as well so that you know she actually made these practical changes to make life better for patients and she focused on women's rights so mm. you know one of the most shocking laws in the book i think is the law in illinois at that time that allowed a husband to send his wife away to a mental hospital without any evidence of her insanity. And what was crazy for want of a better word about that law was that it specifically said in black and white, you know, a husband could do it without the evidence of insanity that was required in other cases. Married Mm. women you know, they didn't have any defense in the law. Other people did. Other people, you know, might have to have a jury trial at that time, you know, for a a jury of their peers to say, yes, they're insane. They should be sent away. But married women could be sent away specifically without evidence.
0: It's literally insane. Mm. Right. Like, let's talk about what is the insane thing here. The insane thing here is that a woman could be sent away. And this really sets up something I've been starting to research, which is how the institution of marriage has really held women down. And listen, I'm married. I love my husband. It has nothing to do with that. But the way that marriage was set up as ownership.
1: that That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, one of the laws that affects Elizabeth and the sort of um, background to that law I've just described is something called coverture. Which was inherited from England, hello, <laughs> What's mm-hmm. the answer for from, from us Brits, and it was set up in the eleven hundreds, so obviously mm. you know a really, really historic outdated law that you know sh- you would think shouldn't be impacting our lives, you know you know s- is so many centuries after the eleven hundreds, but that law said the husband and wife are one in law, and the one is the husband. And it literally meant that wives had no legal identity at all. They literally didn't exist in law. They had, therefore, no right to property because their husband had the right to property, but women didn't. They had no right to their own earnings. They had no right to the custody of their children. Everything was owned by the husband, including the wife. You know, she literally lost all legal identity. And it was only really in the mid-19th century that some of those laws started to be amended so that women did begin to have the right to their own earnings and things like that. But it was, you know, really slow steps. And in fact, so slow were the steps that it wasn't until 1974 that women got the right to have a credit card independently. Before then, your spouse would have to co-sign any credit application. So a woman literally couldn't get a credit card, you know, herself until the late 1970s. And it's because of this law of coverture that, you know, that, you know, she wasn't seen as responsible. Someone else had to sign for her. Um, so oh you gosh. can see how these laws impacted, you know, right up into the 20th century.
0: Mm. I was born in 1974. And I still remember my mom having credit cards that said, Mrs. Larry Rockkind. Like, she had no name. That's she it. had no, no name. name. She had no, no identity. identity.
1: No rights. Yeah.
0: And so this goes back to the 1100s. And you had to do so much research to do this book.
1: Yeah. I, lo- I love the research. <laughs> oh
0: you must <laughs>
1: <Which is> so... <laughs> to do a book so in depth yeah <laughs> You've so it. in
0: depth I mean this is wait, how many pages um I don't there know are, there are lengthy
1: end notes so um it's not as long yeah as you yeah think. oh yeah there are a lot of end notes
0: <laughs> but it's it I don't want to scare anyone away with how many pages it's worth like I said it's a it's a page dinner, but it's yeah. 400 and something pages and you you have to really research because you share actual conversations that happened
1: yeah that's thanks to Elizabeth herself, basically, because part of finding her voice was becoming a writer herself. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, she kept a journal in the asylum. And when she got out, she determined that she wanted to publish it. And she's so extraordinary that, you know, obviously no publisher would touch it. It was such a controversial subject. She was a controversial person because she'd been in an asylum and you really want to publish the writings of a mad woman, Um, you know. So, but what was incredible about Elizabeth was she was determined that she would support herself because at this point, you know, her husband will have nothing to do with her. And as I've explained, you know, she has no right to the shared marital home. She has no right to the income, the, you know, the finances that they've built up, you know, over their 20 year marriage. You know, she's completely penniless, homeless, you know, he kicked her out and she's left on her own. But she wants to support. And she herself. doesn't even
0: have right. And she doesn't even have rights to the children. No,
1: he's like taken her the children. her whole drive. He's taken yeah. them, and
0: her whole drive was wanting her children back. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, like when, really when she's taken
1: to the asylum, she has an eighteen-month-old. That's the age of her youngest child when she goes to the asylum, and you know, he's robbed all of that from her. And Elizabeth is so extraordinary. You know, no publisher will touch t- her work, but she's determined that her book you know, is worth reading and that she's got things to say and she wants people to listen to them. And so essentially in a really forward thinking, you know, thing that she comes up with, you know, this is testament to how incredible and how smart this woman was, she crowdfunded the publication of her books and her journal. She literally went from door to door, knocking on doors, going into public houses, going to train stations, going to the mayor's office and she would go in and tell her story and say can you just give me 50 cents towards the publication of this book and she convinced thousands of people to invest in her and her book and she therefore was able to print them, they became instant bestsellers and she became incredibly wealthy financially because her books were bestsellers coast to coast and she was Doing the whole, you know, she didn't have to, you know, she was selling the whole package. She was doing marketing, sales, production. One woman, you know, businesswoman, just completely incredible entrepreneur. And because of crowdfunding her books, they exist for us to read, to read her story, to read her intimate journey, to read about the conversations that she had recorded in her doctor's office, you know, in, you know, between herself and her husband and so on. So you're right, you know, the research that went into the book. Is very intimate because not only was I able to draw on Elizabeth's own accounts of what happened, but I found her husband's diary. So he's got Mm. his account of what was going on, his account of certain conversations, his account of what he was thinking when he's sending her away. And I also had access to some of the writings of her psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Andrew McFarland, who was the superintendent of the Illinois State Hospital, the man who held Elizabeth's liberty in his hands. And I also had access to his letters and, you know, reading what he felt about her case, which is incredibly illuminating as well in terms of what doctors thought about women at the time. The way that doctors thought any woman who wanted to sort of push the boundaries of her domestic sphere, if she was assertive, if she was ambitious, then she was seen as mentally ill because why would any woman want to work outside the home, want to have a voice outside the home? You know, any woman who hated her husband, you know, obviously Elizabeth had completely justifiable reason for doing so because her husband had committed Mm. her. But her hatred was seen as unnatural and therefore sick. Mentally ill mm. because a woman, a wife, is supposed to love her husband. So, yeah, I was do, able to do all this research and really delve into the world of the insane asylums of the nineteenth century. I love all that sort of gothic horror, mm. um, you know, bringing those elements to life. So, yes, yeah, sorry, I've, I've gone off on a complete tangent and infusing about this
0: world. But I not, had a wonderful. Please, time <laughs> do not apologize. I'm obsessed. I'm telling you, it, it all it, it answered some questions for me right because as a woman's coach i hear all day long from women the doubt yeah literally saying oh people will think i'm nuts you know i want to leave my job mm. and go start my own thing or i want to do an etsy store people are going to think i'm crazy why would i leave you know i i had a client who had a high level job at stripe so like a big tech company everybody's like dream right She's like, everyone's going to think I'm nuts that I want to leave and do my own thing. And so reading this book and Elizabeth's journey, I went, well, of course, it like filled in the gap of why we feel that people will think we're crazy. And a piece of this, you talk about the condition of hysteria Mm. in the book. yeah, And that women, hysteria was a diagnosis, right? When women are told, don't be, you're so hysterical. You're getting hysterical. You no, know, it just means I actually have passion and I have emotion, right? And I'm fired up about something. But you talk about how hysteria was a condition, an illness, where the Greek root of the word is uterus. Yeah. Right. And so, language wise, doctors were even able to say that this is an illness a woman, it's only, for, it's only a woman or mostly women because it comes from the uterus. And it's about speaking up or about having passion. That's
1: it. That, that is all it is. Yeah. And it, 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 what's fascinating about delving into the sort of medical records of the time and reading doctors' accounts of, you know, new theories that they were coming up and, and so on, it is directly linked. They saw the female body Essentially, possession of a female body meant to doctors that you were liable to go mad, you know, so much so that they would encourage mothers uh, to try to delay the onset of their daughter's periods because they thought, you know, simply having that menstrual cycle, you know, the fluctuation of hormones and so on, that was likely to end up in madness, you know, and... Obviously, the idea of trying to delay your daughter's period, you know, the, the, the things that they were suggesting were things like um, avoiding taking, uh, you know, sleeping in feather beds and taking cold shower baths and eating red meat. You know, all those things were a no-no. And, of course, you were not supposed to read novels. That was the worst thing. Mm-hmm. You know, novel reading mm. uh, was actually. Don't read. Actually. Don't gain a, knowledge. Exactly. It was actually listed on the asylum's, you know, register as a cause of insanity. They would have causes of insanity of the patient's novel reading was on there.
0: It's all getting me so angry. So after I read your book, I started the book When God Was a Woman.
1: Have you read this book? I have not. I don't know,
0: it actually. Oh, Kate, please read it and then let's have another conversation. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Because it goes back to the history of woman number one, quote unquote, Eve. Mm-hmm. Right, and how a woman seeking knowledge, right? It's like anyone who grew up in a Judeo-Christian religion of any kind and you went to any sort of Sunday school, Hebrew school, whatever it might have been, you grew up learning that the fall of humanity was a woman's fault. Yeah. Because she sought knowledge. Like, God forbid we should seek knowledge. Yeah. When in fact, if we really go back in history, thousands of years ago, religions were matriarchs. And the goddess was honored. The woman was honored because she gave birth. And they used to not even know like, that a sperm or a man or a penis had anything to do with it. It was just yeah. she was suddenly pregnant and she suddenly could give life. Like, yeah. whoa, that must be the superior gender, right? So all of this in history, it's actually more recent history. And it's all based from a patriarchal religious mm. indoctrination. I mean, it's really... It's insane, actually.
1: What's really interesting is um, when I was doing my research, obviously, into women's rights and the women's rights movement and so on, which, you know, Elizabeth's story is sort of framed by. And that's what she gets involved with. And, you know, it's what actually inspires her to start, you know, speaking out against her husband. She's inspired by the women's rights movement around her, which is nationally, you know, starting to bear fruit and it's prompting conversations, you know, all across America. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, wrote that actually it was the, you know, the, the clerics and the ministers who were, I think she, she described it as something like, when, you know, whenever they were um, angry, they were like peas in a hot skillet pan, you know, popping with anger. Um, and it was the clerics that she had more of a sort of problem with than any other area of society. They were the people that were really mad that women were trying to gain more rights um, mm. And obviously, they feared that their authority was being undermined.
0: Right, right, because it it was it was. Yeah. Now you brought up the doctor, mm, Doctor Andrew McFarland. Yes. I mean, that guy I better hope he never meets me because I will just <laughs> kick him where it hurts. Right. I mean, obviously, he's long <laughs> gone, but he was like the original gaslighter. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah, he was. I mean, reading his. Um, his medical notes is fascinating and horrifying in, in equal measure I, I think the thing i was most horrified in reading his notes was the way his a sort of ideal way for for treating patients and you know what he hoped to aspire to in his treatment of patients is he compared himself to prospero And the women were Caliban, you know, these sort of uncivilized creatures that he had to tame. And Mm. Elizabeth herself recognized that dynamic. You know, she said she'd been sent to the asylum to be broken in. And she talked Mm -hmm. about McFarlane's subduing treatment. And that's what she witnessed. You know, any patient who showed any emotion, really, you know, whether that's anger at the husband that sent her there, whether it's grief at missing her children, you know, any woman who cried, That was seen as bad. You know, she was going backwards. She was not getting well. To get well, you had to brush your hair. You had to, you know, present yourself well. You had to smile. You had to follow the rules. It's all about becoming docile and obedient and submissive. And essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, the doctor's sort of program that the women had to go under was they were learning to submit to his will. And he sort of talked about the way he was their superior and what he hoped was to sort of empty them of any sense of self and then refill them with his own authority so that they would bow at his reproof and be elevated Mm. by his smile. And those are quotations Mm. from his writing. And that's that Mm. sort of horrifying thing of of people being wiped clean and you're just sort of left with these automatons or or I describe them as cut-out dolls uh, in the book. Um, and that's what the women on Elizabeth's ward were suffering, and that's what she didn't you know that's what she refused to submit to. What she rebelled against was this idea of submitting to the male authority of the doctors, and essentially they're teaching them how to behave in the hospital so that they can release them back into society where they will continue to submit to the masculine authority in their lives, no longer doctor on the outside but husband or father. And that's what the women are, are learning what to do, but not Elizabeth Packard.
0: Not Elizabeth Packard. <laughs> oh, no. But he kind of let her on, too. He to did. It, it's think. a really
1: interesting dynamic between the two of them. And, you know, there, there is, you know, it's Elizabeth, you know, falls in love with him to a degree and is he leading her on? And, you know, it's a really interesting dynamic. And, and people often ask me to talk about it and, and say what? what I think happened. And I'm always so sympathetic to Elizabeth because having read her husband's diary, you know, it just gives me a small insight into what a boring, dull man he was. And Elizabeth was brilliant you know, even her enemies described her fine mind and brilliant imagination. People talk Hmm. about her charisma, her magnetism, the way she'd be the center of any room. You know, the fact that this is a woman who ultimately, you know, goes on to campaign politically. She, you know, gives speeches in front of rooms full of politicians and they're there hanging on her every word. The fact that she convinced these thousands of people to, you know, support her work um, is testament to how persuasive she was. You know, she's a, you know, an absolutely brilliant woman, you know, to meet her I'm sure was to be bowled over by this, you know, spirited, bright, articulate woman and then she's married to this boring man who is lazy, who, you know, doesn't excel at his studies, who, you know, reuses sermons because he's too lazy to, to write new ones, who is scared of public speaking, you know, who is timid, who is shy, who, you know, shuns company, who is not brilliant. he's, he's just so, you know, having read his diary, just horrendous, you know, for her to put up with him for all those years. <laughs> and the other thing is he's 15 years older than her as well. Right. And McFarland is six months younger. And you think Elizabeth arrives at the hospital having been oppressed by her husband, you know, for 20 years, but then also specifically in the last sort of two and a half years, and certainly the last four months have been a really intense period building up to him sending her away. And then she meets McFarland, this handsome Mm. man, this shoulder to cry on. You know, he's intending to, you know, nurture this relationship so that she'll submit to him. So he, you know, is sympathetic and he's cultured. You know, he's the kind of man who quotes Shakespeare in his psychiatry essays. He loves the poetry of Burns. He writes poetry himself. And for me, I just put myself in Elizabeth's shoes and think, you know, for 20 years, you're with this boring man who is 15 years your senior, you know, essentially a different generation. And then you meet this young, sympathetic, you know um intelligent cultured yeah exactly and of course wouldn't you know anybody would fall swept... a little bit in love exactly. too yeah. you know anybody would be would be swept off their off, off their feet i think um, mm. but yeah the way their relationship evolves and how he plays her is shocking and um disgusting and uh, yes. will really make Maddening. people think yeah yeah and i'm sure other people will see some of their own relationships and dynamics in the play between the two i'm sure
0: right right it it is a fascinating thread where at least i was going to say we or someone but i'll definitely speak for myself the whole time i'm rooting for elizabeth right like she's going to get justice she's going to get her kids back she's going to show the world what happens in this mental institution and then there's almost a point like at the very almost at the end where it seems like the doctor is going to win because he exposes that she did love him. Mm. And I started crying. And then I started screaming. My husband's like, what's going on with you? I'm like, she's not going to prevail, right? And this is just what's so incredible. It's a true story, and you capture it where I feel like it's happening right in front of me. And I'm so curious, since you wrote this book because of the Me Too movement, did you know about Elizabeth? Or you needed to find a woman who represented being silenced and what we've been through
1: yeah exactly that i i was inspired to write the book in me too and i what struck me about that movement was you know thinking why has it taken so long for women to be listened Mm. to and from that Mm -hmm. i was like well how have women been silenced and discredited in the past you know why has it taken that long you know because it's not like 2017 was the first time people suddenly said this is happening you know Mm-hmm. women have always spoken out. So that was then, I then started to think, well, how have we been discredited in the past? So that when we've raised our voices before, when we've called out men for their oppressive, misogynistic, you know, abusive behavior, why is it taken till now before this movement has come to light? And I realized, you know, for centuries, whenever women have used our voices, we've been called crazy. And yes, mm-hmm. I then went looking for a woman whose personal story would allow me to explore those issues. I was looking for a woman in history who was sane, but who had been called insane by a patriarchal society Mm. for speaking her mind. And that's what I went looking for. And originally, I started looking in the 20th century. And I was, you know, I'm a huge Sylvia Plath fan. So I love the bell jar and books like that. And I was looking at that sort of period, 1950s, 1960s all the stories I found, and I found lots, they were really depressing, because the women were silenced, there was electric shock therapy, there were lobotomies at that time. And so I had to go further back, because the psychiatric treatments in the 20th century actually did silence the women. And I found Elizabeth, you know, through this sort of internet rabbit warren, as you know, anyone who obviously who falls down an internet search sort of you know wormhole you know how one thing leads to another and I was reading uh, a university of Wisconsin essay online about lunacy in the 19th century and four Mm. pages in there was a single paragraph that made reference to Elizabeth Packard and I thought Mm. well she sounds interesting so I googled her and very quickly realized from researching her story that she was the one you know the woman I was going to write about because she's amazing, you know she has everything that I was looking for and more you know her story is packed full of drama and you know we've we've talked before you know this is a book that's full of research it's a true story it's four hundred pages long but the kind of writer I am I'm a narrative nonfiction writer so as you say I intend I hope to create in writing this book that it feels, it reads like a novel. I hope Elizabeth, you know, feels like a friend. It's very intimate. It's setting the scene. It's, you know, telling the story in a way that hopefully sweeps you up in the story. It is page turning and has cliffhanger endings and and so on and so forth. That's what I was aspiring to write. And Elizabeth's story has all the drama that you c- could hope for in that. You know, there's courtroom drama with sort of landmark legal cases. There's the drama of her being kidnapped as, you know, People are literally hacking their way into her room with an axe because they're so determined to carry her off to the asylum. And then Mm -hmm. you've got, you know, Elizabeth herself, this strong woman who fearlessly defies the expectations of her time and goes on not only to triumph personally, but publicly and politically. And that was that was the crucial thing, really, because... I didn't just want to discuss these issues that still resonate today in a really depressing way, frankly, that we're still, you know, that we as women in the 21st century are feeling these same things and suffering these same things that Elizabeth did. So what I wanted in exploring the issues was to have an inspiring heroine and a happy ending because Mm. I wanted to show that actually, you know if you believe in yourself and you fight for what you believe in and you stand up for yourself and you dare to dream and you dare to be, you know, that client that you had and you do strike out on your own and you believe in your voice and you believe in yourself, even if everyone else around you is saying you're crazy and is doing you down, if you persevere in what you believe is right, then you can triumph because that's what Elizabeth Packard does and did. And she stands as a shining example to all of us that even though these issues are still a problem, actually you can find solutions within yourself.
0: Say it, sister. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. Every word that you just said. And that is just, we did talk about 400 pages and all that. But the first thing I want everyone to make sure you heard like, I couldn't put this down. I've been obsessed. Because I do feel like even though it was hundreds of years ago, I feel like it's right in front of me. And I do feel like she's my best friend. And I do feel like I just want to run into the courtroom. And I want to like, no, you have to change this.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that. That was my aspiration. So thank you. (laughs) Uh,
0: I mean, I, I think I'm like your, you know, I've got to be your number one fan of this book. I'm like, why was it number two second for Goodreads? No, it should be number one. Like this book, the way you write, Kate, it's getting right to my heart and right to my soul, where I feel like this is happening to me. Like, yes, it's happening to my, my soul sister, Elizabeth Packard, but this could easily be happening to me. And I think that what we're looking at right now, we're here in the United States, Roe v. Wade just repealed. I mean, women still being paid so much less than men. States not wanting to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, Like. They don't want to say that women have equal rights yeah god forbid we should put it in, in in the constitution that women have equal rights this story matters and the way you wrote it matters for every single one of us to go if elizabeth could do it so can i
1: completely yeah and as you say that the timing actually horrifyingly could not be more relevant um you know you think you, you know you when i was writing the book you're sort of Yes, the issues are still resonating, but you think, you know, Elizabeth has uh, you know, laid this legal groundwork that we're building on that is giving us more rights and so on and so forth. And then you realize that actually, in some ways, those rights are like, uh, you know, a house of cards and they can mm-hmm. come tumbling down so easily. And, and it, you know, with Roe versus Wade being repealed, it reminds me in, in my research, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you know, I think it was in 1860, um, a law was passed in New York to allow women the right to their own earnings. Brilliant. In 1862, the legislature rolled it back and they repealed Ugh. the law that had been passed. So that just illustrates to me how paper thin, you know, some of these, these laws are. advances are, um, as we're seeing today, you know, and in, right. in, in horrifying clarity.
0: And if it sounds crazy to anyone listening to this, that a husband could put his wife into a mental institution without any evidence, then just keep in mind what Kate just said. That law that Elizabeth Packard helped to now put into place where that can't happen could be repealed as well.
1: Yeah, and and I will add... All of these laws are like up for grabs now. Yeah, and I'll add as well that um, I've had so many emails from readers essentially saying the same thing happened to them or was threatened to be happened. And the problem is that the weight of a man is often given, you know, the word of a man is often given more weight than that of a woman. So I've had emails uh, from readers sort of saying, you know, in in 2017, there might have been a domestic violence incident, for example, and the police were called. Uh, This is what a reader emailed to me. And, you know, the woman had been attacked by her husband, but he was saying, she's crazy. And the police were saying, well, do you want us, do you need support from us to put her essentially, you know, in a mental hospital (sighs) to stop her causing you problems? You know, and, and this is 2017 that the reader emailed me about. So still, there are these systems in place that are trying to oppress women. So, you know, I've actually been stunned at how many messages I've got from readers who have said that this story has resonated with them, not just because of the general oppression of women and the way that a woman having a voice, having an idea is seen as crazy, that, you know, we feel that in our bones, that sort of hesitancy about speaking. I have had people say to me, this literally happened to me, you know, this incarceration on the word of my husband, my partner, this happened to me.
0: Oh my God. 150 years later. Yeah. I mean, that, that's actual insanity. Why do you think, Kate, there's so much oppression of women?
1: I think a lot of it comes from fear, to be honest. Yeah, um, me too. And, you know, I think there's a, a, a sort of power grab dynamic going on. You know, men have had it all their own way for so long that as we see in, you know, lots of different uh, power dynamics, you know whether that's across race or class, um, or gender, those in power don't want to share it. Um, mm-hmm. even though doing, you know, it doesn't, you know, some, a woman having a power or, or right in law doesn't take anything away from a man. And yet there's this desire to control, um, and to sort of, uh, keep what power they have to themselves and not share
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fear too. And, you know, we must be really powerful <laughs> if they want <laughs> Well, I mean, it, if they have to yeah. hold us that down, you know, like they must really be afraid yeah. of what we have to say. But, but
1: isn't it interesting, you know, the, the God is a woman reference that you made earlier, the fact that a lot of religions used to be matriarchal uh, in mm-hmm. structure, you know, perhaps, you know, things have gone the other way. Have you read The Power by Naomi Alderman?
0: No, but I'll put it on my a, it's list. It's
1: a great, it's a novel um, and it's fantastic. And it's almost looking at that that very thing of, you know, where, who has power and, and what does that do to the to the world if men or women are in charge? Um, mm. it's,
0: it's, it's a
1: great one. I'd recommend it to anyone uh, who's listening as well, The Power by Naomi Alderman. It's a fantastic, thought-provoking
0: novel. Okay, fantastic. It It is an interesting moment, I th- you know, I think we're in a real moment of power at the moment. And I know I used to hate the word power because my idea of power was someone who has power over and wants to, like, take it from other people and wants to oppress others and greed and violence. And I've so shifted how I think about power that it's this internal... Sovereignty. Mm, I love that. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And when we look at Elizabeth Packard, that's that's what she had inside of her. Mm. An absolute knowing, an absolute resolve. And then she took it out. Yeah. You know, and when I look at you, Kate, I mean, we were chatting right before we started everybody, and she has a son, Shay's age. Like we we gave birth basically at the same time. <laughs> like days apart, right? <laughs> When did you write this book? I'm trying to figure this out. <laughs> before he came. <laughs> Largely. Before he came. Okay. Yeah,
1: I, w- I was still editing. So about six to eight weeks postnatal, I was doing the edits. And they were quite um dramatic because I decided I hated the beginning. Um, I reread it. Like I, I, I was obviously frantically trying to finish it up before I uh, gave birth. Right, so you're nine
0: months pregnant and you're trying to finish up <laughs> the book. I'm trying to finish right. up
1: the book. I I've delivered it and I'm doing edits and so on. So I, I think I delivered it in March of that year. So March 2020. Um, And I was, um, I'd done the sort of major edits, which included like I'd had to lose a whole part at the beginning. Um, I wrote this whole part one called A Pack of Wolves, which was about how the community around Elizabeth are involved and integral in her being sent to the asylum. You know, it's actually not just her husband, the whole community turn against this woman who is speaking out and it was about that sort of feeling of being hounded and you know Mm -hmm. how her husband's parishioners are part of the sort of witch hunt against her i was sort of inspired by um arthur miller's the crucible you know the way Mm -hmm. that town you know and all those sort of rumors suddenly take root and start this fire so i'd written this whole part and all of it had to go because the book was too long so i'd obviously had Mm -hmm. to restructure the beginning so i'd done that and you know sent it off gave birth re-read it <laughs> six weeks postnatal and then was like I hate the beginning <laughs> I've got to rewrite it so I think my husband took my son to the park and I was there you know trying to rewrite the beginning um it was in very- one park th- visit oh, oh no not one no it was, <laughs> and several late, nights, and several I'm like, late nights yeah several like with the baby like, in One like, arm well, and I can't sleep anyway because yeah. right <laughs>
0: I'm feeding a child yeah. at 3 a.m. And I, right. So I may as well be typing with yeah. one, one it was, hand. It
1: was, it was hard. There were a lot of tears. Um, and I can't do this and my brain doesn't work. And obviously I was exhausted, but, um, right. Yeah. What I came up with was better than what I'd done before. So, you know, that's good.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm in even more. I loved this book before, but now that I know this part, <laughs> like, because we lost half of our brain when we gave birth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, Although I don't want to say that because I don't want some man to use that against us, right? I don't want some patriarchal crap to like come at us. It's,
1: it, it's we just, we
0: created a new brain. Yeah, yes.
1: it's just it's just unbelievable. Like you you actually can't know until you've gone through it. And, and every woman is different as well. Like you know, yeah, um, as to what the what they go through, whether it's smooth, whether it's easy. Yeah, you know, everyone has a different journey that you go through, but it it is hard, and it it's hard to think about anything else. Yeah. let alone try and redraft the beginning. Of a
0: book. Right, I mean, I can't. Are you already working on your next one?
1: I'm trying to research ideas. You know, obviously now, um, the uh, the I have a child. It's so much harder. You know, finding time at the moment. I'm a full time mum, so it's. Even harder to find any time, so I'm researching ideas. I've maybe found something, but I'm not 100 percent sure it's right. So I'm sort of mulling on that and, and thinking: is it is it the right one um, to do next, or do I need to keep mm. looking uh, for something else? Mm.
0: Mm. Well, I'm excited about whatever's coming next.
1: Thank you, thank
0: you. I love how you write. I love you bringing these stories to the forefront. Th- these are the stories that haven't been told, and it's through telling these stories that the world will change because we can start to say, Oh no, never again. Oh no, I'm going to be like Elizabeth Packard. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is, when you all read this book, you're going to see, I mean, she went out and lobbied Mm. and got laws passed.
1: Yeah. She got, she got stuff done.
0: (laughs) She got stuff done. I mean, it's incredible. And she did, you know, it's so much. I don't want to give away some of the endings. It's so good. Okay. K K K K Kate, I could talk to you forever. I'm in love with this book. I'm in love with your work. I want to see what's next. I'm going to go back. I haven't read the Radium Girls yet because oh, this was the first book of yours yeah. that I found. I will enjoy. The, I will. The enjoy. Radium
1: Girls is such a uh, even more of a passion project for me, um, and I am such an advocate for those amazing women. And you talked about power earlier. The story of the Radium Girls is this—you know—a group of seemingly powerless women who again, you know, change the world for the better and they find that strength both within themselves and within the dynamic of their female friendship and they fight for justice. And I am, yeah, these women so deserve to be remembered. You know, people that don't know who the Mm. Radium Girls were, they were a group of American women from the Roaring Twenties who were poisoned by the Radium paint they work with and they courageously fight for justice against the employers Mm. who have sentenced them to death. And it's an incredible story of perseverance and resilience and hope and tragedy and strength and dignity and sacrifice. Mm. And they're just beautiful, 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 beautiful women. And I'm excited for you that you get to learn their story. And if anyone else hasn't read it, honestly, for them, please read it because I wrote it for them to be remembered. So if, yeah. Please, 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 please read it because they really deserve to, to have their story known.
0: Oh, I will. It's going into my card, my shopping cart <laughs> tonight, 100%. Because I was obsessed with this and I, I just really want to say thank you, Kate, for bringing these stories forward.
1: It's my privilege to be able to, to do it. I'm so lucky to be doing mm. the work that I'm doing. So thank you for, for reading. You know, if you guys didn't read oh. it, I couldn't write them. So... Thank
0: you. Okay. I know we're out of time, but now I'm just so curious. There's a couple of things. One, people listening to this might be like, but I don't get it. How did Elizabeth get out? And how did she then go on? And I'm just going to say, you have to go read it for that. We had to leave some cliffhangers. (laughs) You're going to have to go get the woman they could not silence to learn how this incredible woman did what she did. And Kate Moore so well shares it. And then I can't help, but when I talk to you, Kate, I think, how did you even get started?
1: get started as a writer
0: or? As a writer and getting these books published and getting onto best selling lists. I mean, that's, well, the, you are Elizabeth Packard. <laughs> that's incredible. The
1: Radium Girls, was a, a, which was a New York Times bestseller and was my debut American history book. Um, you know, that's a complete fairy tale story. Uh, you know, my background is actually in publishing. I worked as an editor and an editorial mm. director in the UK um, for over a decade And a bit like your client earlier, I took a punt. I left that essentially corporate editing job. I used to work for Penguin Random House, you know, one of the biggest publishers in the world. Oh yeah. And I left to be a freelance editor and writer if I was lucky. I didn't know if I would be able to support myself through my writing, but I thought, you know, if you don't try, you'll never know. And I was lucky enough that I was able to build a career out of it. I, you know, was started as a ghostwriter. I was writing people's memoirs, which for me has really informed the books that I now write in American history. You know, I was someone's ghostwriter. I would sit down with them. I would listen to their story and then I would craft their memoir, you know, using their words as much as possible in a page turning way. When I sit down and look at Elizabeth's story or the Radium Girls story, I look for their words. I essentially try to emulate that sitting down on the sofa with a cup of tea experience Mm. as I'm researching their words. And then I write their stories essentially their memoirs and try and bring it to life in a dramatic way. Um, So that's the background. So I'd written lots of books before the Radium Girls, but that was my first history book and my first American book. And I was just so, so, so lucky that it did what it did.
0: Wow. Okay. There's always a little bit of luck. And I'm just going to shine the light that it's not all luck, sister. You worked for it. You worked hard, you put in the time, you learned how to write in a particular way. You were brave and went out on your own when other people probably thought you were crazy. You went for it, you put it together, you shopped for the agent or the publisher, you made it happen. So I'm just gonna put some credit back into you. Okay, (laughs) Um, whenever I interview women, I like to do a couple random questions and it's called the Purpose Power Play Round and whatever you come up with works. Sound good? Okay, let's do it. Okay. When you were a little girl, what did you want to be? Actress. Actress. <laughs> okay, this is so funny because I just thought, you're going to have a movie.
1: I hope, well, hopefully the books might get adapted. I should say as well, I'll just clarify the answer. I wanted to be an actress, and while I was resting, I was going to write books. Oh. <laughs> while
0: you were resting. Isn't that, isn't that sweet? <laughs> while you were resting. Well, I'm not saying you are going to act in one of your own Uh, films you might but a knowing that came to me is oh radium girls is going to get a movie
1: i hope hopefully that some people might be aware of a netflix one that's nothing to do with my book or the real story it's a fictional one but yeah there's been interest in in doing the real women from my book so fingers crossed oh my god you're so fingers crossed
0: yes okay we're just going to send you all the love (laughs) and all that thank you yeah and let's just say when you're i don't know 80 what do you want people to say about you
1: She was kind.
0: Hmm. Well, we know that you are. I can already tell. Who's been an influence to you? My husband.
1: Oh. He's an incredible creative person. Um, He is my first reader. uh, And he just, yeah, he's a brilliant director himself. So he knows how to tell stories. He tells them on stage, you know, through actors and other people's scripts um that he's amazing so yeah he's my inspiration. What a beautiful
0: partnership oh so beautiful so beautiful all right last question what do you want every woman to know
1: you're amazing
0: mm, I love that so much I didn't even tell you did you even see the shirt I wore for you today <laughs> I love that <laughs> Y'all can see, it says the badass woman in me honors the badass woman in you. I salute that. Super intentional. Yeah, salute that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kate Moore, you're amazing. And I'm right so back grateful. At you. Right back at you. Thank you, sister. You're incredible. I'm sure once I read the Radium Girls, I'm going to want to have you back on to talk about that. Because I am more convicted than ever in this pursuit of us reclaiming woman. Like the powerful woman, and that we have always been her, no matter how many times people have tried to silence us or hold us back, and each one of us finding the Elizabeth Packard in ourselves, because she's there. So, Kate, thank you, thank you, thank you for writing this incredible, incredible story, this incredible book. Everyone out there, go get The Woman They Could Not Silence" by Kate Moore. You will love it. I want to hear what you thought of it. I mean, you and then pass it on to everybody that you know. That's how we change the world, one woman at a time. Of course, follow Kate Moore in all the places. Follow Kate Books on Twitter. Go to her website, kate-moore, dot com. Of course, that will be in the show notes. And share this episode with every woman that you know. Of course, if you haven't yet joined the Purpose Girls Facebook group, what are you waiting for? We are 5,000 Women Strong, all declaring the Elizabeth Packard and the Kate Moore in ourselves to go after our own dreams and really step into our own magnificent. With that, my love, may you live purposefully. May you love yourself and may you love life. Bye for now.